Welcome to the Converge Community Church Podcast, where we provide for you the previous Sunday morning sermon. And now without further ado, may the Holy Spirit minister to your heart as you hear the preaching of God's Word. Good morning. Uh, I'm uh, preaching is a, is a great joy because uh, we have in God's word uh, a feast of truth that, that really does um, confront us and, and prevail over us and uh, in, in, in really giving us joy, peace. Um, and, and, and so we have a, a, a real privilege this morning to open up God's word together. So uh, that being said, for the next three weeks, we're in the middle of Advent now. And so for three weeks, uh, we're going to continue our break from the, the Matthew uh, sermon on the Mount. Someone mentioned uh, the, the genre of sermon. We've been really hammering home the sermon genre in Matthew. But we're going to take a break to consider uh, what theologians call the incarnation or God becoming flesh, God becoming man. And, and so the birth of Jesus. Uh, and yet he, he doesn't forsake his divinity and all that. He is still God. And, uh, but more specifically, we want to consider how the incarnation um, brings love into the world, hope into the world, peace into the world, and joy to the world. So I think Pastor Mike brought um, the, the topic of hope to our, for our meditation last week. How does Jesus' birth bring hope into the world? And this morning, uh, our focus will be on joy. To, to the world. And our text this morning is a, is a familiar one. It's Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. And the events recorded in this text take place during a dark and difficult time of history. And yet in the middle of that darkness, God gave his people reason for joy. And I think that joy is amplified actually by the contrast with the darkness of the times. And so to maybe help us feel the context a little bit more. Consider some examples. Consider the desperation of a World War II prisoner of war, um, stuck in the camp, losing all hope. And, and, and right when they're, they're at their lowest point, they're told the war's over. We won. You're free. The joy is almost unbelievable, almost unspeakable. Or be, uh, consider this example. Consider that you heard your child's apartment complex had just collapsed and many were dying or, or found dead. And, and you're anxiously worrying next to the phone, hoping against hope that you will get a call. And then you do. You get the call. Your child wasn't at home and they're okay. It's joy. Or consider a daughter who had for a decade been barren calling home to say, mom, I'm pregnant. I mean, what these stories have in common is joy when you least expect it. Joy when it seems um, like, like there could be no more joy. Um, almost joy that is too good to be true. And, and I think that's a flavor of maybe uh, what, what our characters in, in Luke felt um, in this chapter. Um, God has a way, friends, of turning mourning into gladness. He has a way of, of turning silence into praises. And he has a way of visiting his people when they have nothing left. And he has a way of bringing deliverance to those who are desperate. And, which brings us to what I think is the main idea of our text this morning. The coming of a Savior prompts joyful praise from his people. So the, the coming of a Savior prompts joyful praise in his people. 
And uh, so this is a narrative. And in Sunday school, we, we plotted the, the plot line. And, and so now you guys are all going to be a little upset because I'm going to divide this up by scenes and not necessarily by plot line. Um, but I, I see a few different scenes. Number one being the Savior's birth in Bethlehem, followed by the scene two. Uh, there's a proclamation of, of the Savior's birth to a bunch of shepherds in the field. Uh, scene three, uh, those shepherds will go and seek a sign. You know, they, they said, the angel said, go, you'll find the sign to be true. So they seek out the, the confirmation and then they respond to it as well at the, at the end. And so that being said, um, I'm going to read the word this morning. Um, but before I do, let me invite you, if you're able to stand, um, not because I have something important to say, but because God's word is important. And so we do this here to honor God's holy word. Luke chapter two, starting in verse one. What's that? Okay. Luke chapter two, starting in verse one. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. And he went to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Um, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray as we stand. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Um, give us ears to hear what it is you have for us this morning. You, you say that your word goes out and it does not return to you void. It doesn't return to you empty. Your word is powerful. And so would you uh, work your power in our hearts, prevail over us again, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so
So we'll, we'll dive into our first scene, the, the Savior's birth in Bethlehem. Uh, and we'll just draw attention again briefly to that dark time that I had mentioned, the, the dark season of history. To understand, I think, what made it so dark, we need to understand the people that Luke was writing about. So these people were Israelites, and these people were part of, that means these people were part of the nation that was chosen by God from among all the nations of the world. These were the people that God set his special affections on. Uh, this was the nation to whom God made his promises and covenants to. They were the people that God spoke to through the prophets. Not, not every nation had a, a prophet who would speak God's words to them. These were a people with a special relationship with God. And uh, at least they were supposed to be. But the problem is that God hadn't spoken through a prophet in Israel for over 400 years. It's a long time. And what's worse, these once chosen Israelites, or I guess once and always chosen Israelites, who once occupied a place of, of favor with God, who were once themselves a prosperous nation under David and Solomon, now they were vassals. So they were like a servant nation, uh, who were conscribed to, to do work and, and pay taxes to, to the more powerful and pompous Roman government. And it's Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Um, and as Israel looked for deliverance from Rome, uh, by, you know, that they looked to God for deliverance from Rome. Uh, they, it seemed over time, over and over and over again, there was none. So there were like glimmers of hope. There were rebellions in those 400 years and, um, but, but here they are again under, under Roman power. And, and, and pleading without receiving help is wearisome. Knocking without getting an answer is tiresome. Seeking without finding is it wears on us. And I wonder uh, if any of us can relate to that. Seasons in our life where we are just looking for, for a breath of fresh air. We need, we need just something to relieve us. Hope deferred, the Proverbs say, makes the heart sick. And I imagine that's something of what Israel was feeling at this point. Every year, they, they were familiar with the stories of deliverance, of, of Moses and the Red Sea and, uh, and, and crossing over the Jordan with Joshua. But, but the more that time goes on without hearing from God, they start to feel maybe more like legend than fact. The only thing that felt like fact, I imagine, was taxes, uh, another nagging reminder of Rome's power, which I think is where our text picks up in verse one. In verse one, we're introduced to the great and mighty men of the world, those with power, like today's president. You, we, we're introduced to Caesar and his, one of his governors, Quirinius. And, and whenever they so desired to reassess and count the population for the purposes of collecting taxes, they could say the word and the world had to get up and move. Go back to your hometown so I can... Uh, tax you properly. And, and so people just did what they were told. They're, this is an, a, a, an expression of power, um, which would be more than a little inconvenient today to, to pack up and move to our, our hometowns. But then the text kind of continues on pretty quickly, I think. This, these first seven verses just move fast. And uh, by the time we get to verse four, we are no longer looking at kings and emperors and Caesars. We are now looking at Joseph, it's a little, our gaze is directed lower. He, he's from the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, traveling to his blip on the map hometown, Bethlehem. And he's with his pregnant fiance, Mary. And, and the text ga directs our gaze lower still. Because while they were in Bethlehem, Mary gave birth. And, and, and when she gave birth, 
there was no room for them in the inn, and so she resorts to laying her newborn child in a feeding trough. There was nothing that they, they, they weren't able to secure a, a better arrangement. So it happens fast. It's, it's not necessarily as detailed or il- illustrated as maybe you'd expect this, this beautiful scene to be, this, l- the king of, of, of the universe lying in this lowly manger. Just, it happens fast. We start the, the paragraph with Caesar and his power who can say the word and the world moves. And then at the end of the paragraph, we, 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 we meet who, someone that we, are, we actually already know is, is a king. Chapter one in Luke tells us, this son of yours, Mary, it's going to be, he's, he's the son of the most high. Isn't it interesting that we have in verse one, a king who, who is expressing his power and, and, and flaunting it. And the end of the paragraph, we have a, a, a mightier king who's in, in an animal's feeding trough. There, there's some intense contrast in this tale uh, of two kings. And what Luke seems to be highlighting is that the incredible majesty of King Jesus is perfectly at home in humble circumstances. Three times the manger is mentioned in our text this morning, but it's never presented as a thing of disgrace. And when we reflect on God's activity throughout all of scripture, this, uh, this is a, we'll find a similar pattern. Consider King David. He's pretty awesome, but his beginnings were very humble. Uh, when, when Samuel was sent to crown a king of the sons of Jesse, he's not even on the, his dad didn't even call him to, to, the, to the meeting because it couldn't be David who would be chosen to be king. It had to be one of the other seven sons. But David was out with the sheep. Interesting, um, considering our text. Uh, but this is just, this is how, this is how God works. He chooses the lowly and gentle David. So we shouldn't be surprised when we find that God is very comfortable choosing a, a humble set of circumstances for his eternal king as well. God is very at home with the contrite and lowly. So a manger might not be where you expect deliverance to come from, but this is God's pattern, it seems. He brings salvation through unlikely deliverers to people who will humbly receive them. So God often brings salvation in an unlikely, lowly way, and those who are lowly enough to receive it will receive it. And so here at the turning point of history, God again visits his people, and, by, and he does it by raising up a humble savior. And I think, I think this confronts us in the pride of our hearts a little bit. If we're, if we're open and honest, if you are looking for deliverance from your, your hard seasons, could you, could you have come and found your deliverer sitting in a, in a, in a manger as a baby? Could, could you bow your knee to that kind of king and deliverer? And, and I think that's, that, that's challenging. And only the contrite in spirit will be able to receive a savior such as that. And <clears throat> so if this pattern is true, if in fact God raises up deliverance through the unexpected, humble um, deliverers that you know, he has in, like in King David, I think the characters we meet next will not be much of a surprise to us. Rather than choose the wise and wealthy magi, like Matthew, right, the wise men from the east, uh, we don't meet those characters in Luke. We meet, we meet different characters. Uh, we don't meet Pharisees. We, we meet shepherds. God reveals the majesty and power of his king and deliverer to the lowly shepherds. 
Now, I don't mean to say that there weren't magi. Uh, there certainly were both, and they each served their own purpose in, in each of the gospel author's accounts. But let's consider Luke's choice of shepherds. He, he almost seems to have been preparing our minds to read about a group like this. After all, it's been highlighted over and over and again that God is mindful of and merciful to, to the lowly. We, we've already been introduced to Mary. We've been introduced to um, Elizabeth, who, the, the barren woman who gave birth to John the Baptist. <clears throat> Additionally, we've been reminded of King David, the, the, the shepherd made king. And we've even been primed to think of livestock and mangers, right? Luke is preparing us to, to, in, in, to interact and meet these shepherds. And, and then we do, we meet them, I think curiously, um, at night. Now, that's an interesting detail. I mean, why, why include that? It doesn't say that Mary gave birth at night. I mean, we can kind of conclude that because the shepherds are told at night, but why, why do we meet the shepherds at night? So if you've got your Bibles open, just look with me. I think we'll have it projected too. Let's, let's go in reverse and go back to chapter one, verses 76 uh, through 79. This is Zechariah. His uh, wife had just given birth to John the Baptist after being barren for her whole life. So this is a, this is a, a prophecy of Zechariah's and he's, he's talking about his son and what his son's mission is. And here's what he says. And you child, that is John, Zechariah's talking to his son. You child will be called the prophet of the most high. That is Jesus. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Friends, perhaps those sitting in darkness and in the shadow of death as prophesied by Zechariah, is at least a picture of these shepherds who are watching over their flocks in darkness. And if that is in fact the, the, the comparison being made, perhaps God will also cause a, something of a sunrise to, to um, rise upon these shepherds. And, and that's exactly what we find, isn't it? Verse nine of chapter two, these shepherds are in darkness. And then all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The sunrise from on high, it shone around them and they were filled with great fear. The glory of the Lord was shining in full force around those dwelling in darkness. Can you imagine? I mean, sure, such things happened to Moses and Joshua. The, the, the Jewish scriptures were full of these kinds of things, but what could have prepared the shepherds to think they would be the recipients of such terrifying majesty? But the message that the angel carried was not um, a message of judgment. They're quick to, to put the shepherds at ease. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This is the kind of news that is going to bring uncontainable joy. And it is a joy that is for all people. It's not for kings only, nor for shepherds only. It's not for the Pharisees or the religious leaders only. And it's not for the tax collectors only. It's not for friends only or for enemies only. Not for men only or for women only. If you're a person, then this joy is meant for you. This news is supposed to bring you joy. So what is the news that brings joy? 
Why is it good for everyone? Let's read verse 11. The angel continues. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ the Lord. There's a lot in that little verse. So we'll, we'll slow down a little bit to, to unpack. I think the first thing to notice is um, that someone special is born to whom? To Mary? That would be true. If, if, if it said the, uh, unto Mary is born a, a, a savior, but the angel says born unto you. You who? I think in, in one sense, this is angels talking. It could be, uh, we, we've just been told this is joy for all people. You could be people, generally speaking. There, there is unto humans born a savior. But I think more specifically, we could also read the shepherds. Unto you shepherds is born a savior. God had not forgotten them. God had us, has not forgotten you. And just think, what does that say about our God? God takes notice of those dwelling in darkness and despair and hardship. And and it could be that there's someone here who needs to hear just that, that God has not forgotten you. Observation number two, this baby that was born was to be a savior And it's actually what his name means. We were introduced to that in chapter one. Jesus means that the Lord saves. So this baby will save his people. He will free them. And as we'll find out, not from Rome. He's not going to free them from Rome, but from our sin, which is internal. Um, and, And I think we tend to see our need for deliverance as primarily external. And, and to be sure, the evil one is external and he would have us destroyed. And, and so we're delivered from his schemes too. But I think we have that tendency to, to see our problem is out there. Jesus is here to save us from so much more. He, he's here to free us from the power of sin. And that, that becomes clear uh, as the gospel continues. But we'll, we'll stay in our text this morning. Observation number three, he, this baby is uh, also to be the Christ or uh, in Hebrew, the Messiah, which was a title, not a name. Uh, it's a title that signified um, in short that this was a, a chosen king to, who, or a king chosen to be a deliverer of sorts. And so um, we could probably have a whole sermon on, on the title of Christ, but to, in brief, we'll just say this is a king chosen for the purpose of bringing salvation or deliverance to his people. Um, and, and, and he was more than that, to be born of the city of David, the lineage of David that was brought out in, in Sunday school. Um, why is that significant? Well, back in 2 Samuel, um, we actually are, are introduced, or God is speaking to King David, and he, and he gives him this awesome promise. He says, David, there's going to be a king someday from you, one of your descendants, maybe your great, great, great grandkid. He doesn't tell him what generation he's coming, but he's going he's gonna to be king forever. His kingdom will never end. And, and so when we meet the Christ, we have this expectation that this person is going to deliver his people and set up a kingdom that's going to last forever. And so there, there's great hope in this title of the Christ, the Messiah. And then observation number four, I'm going to spend the least time here, but I think it's maybe the most surprising. This, this baby is not just savior. He's not just Christ. He is the Lord himself. It's a very interesting and, and breathtaking admission by the angels to say, this child is Christ, the Lord himself. 
And so at this point in the announcement, the heavens just could not contain themselves anymore. They burst open in a moment in a great multitude proclaiming glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I mean, I, I, can you imagine it? The, the skies opening up angels singing to shepherds, their, their audiences, the shepherds. And what do they say? Glory to God and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I, I like how Matthew Henry summarized it as I'm reading through his commentary on this section. He, he's, I think he nails it. He says this, when it comes to the angel's announcement, give God the glory, give people the joy. I think that's easy for us to remember. When God sends a savior, what's the purpose of it? Well, we're supposed to give God the glory, but the joy is for us. That's what the angel said. We get the joy. God gets the glory. And, and actually, I think our joy gives God glory. When we're, when we're satisfied and we're happy with, with his deliverance, man, God is honored and glorified in our joy. So glory to God, joy to men and women, joy to you. For God has not left you in your sin or, or, or in, the, in the clutches of the evil one without a means of escape. God hasn't left you helpless if only we lowly people knew how near to us our God is. If only we knew how attentive he is, how much he cares for us. Friends, he cared so much that he became like us. He became a, a, a helpless infant to show us how much he cares. He, he, he did this so that he might save those who come to him. So um, glory to God who is high and lifted up. I, I like this from Isaiah, he talks about where God dwells. Isaiah says, glory to God who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, but he also dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And I don't, I took a note earlier and I can't remember. I think I have a different copy. Um, Another passage from Isaiah, I think is just really fitting at this point too. This is from Isaiah. I I don't have this one on projection. This is Isaiah 49, um, starting in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. But Zion, the people in Jerusalem, his people have said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. And I think that's like maybe how this, this, the context feels, right? God has forgotten us, this silence. But then the Lord responds with this and to us with this. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. Even these mothers may forget. Yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. What a beautiful image for the Lord's affections for us. I've engraved you. Nursing mothers might forget their child. I will not forget you. And I, what, a, what a comfort that is. And I think the, the shepherds are, are getting a taste of that in this um, scene of epic proportions. Uh, which brings us to um, kind of closing the curtains on the heavenly choir. They, they recede back into heaven. And then after all the excitement is done, <clears throat> the shepherds found themselves back in the dark. Except I think the darkness probably felt different now, don't you? Watching over your sheep by night under Roman power and authority. But now I I think the darkness perhaps didn't feel dreary or tiresome. 
I think it, it wasn't the empty darkness of 400 years without hearing from God. Perhaps now that darkness felt full of anticipation and hope ready for the sun to rise. And, and God's long silence had just exploded in the middle of a field outside of Bethlehem. And what had just happened was almost unbelievable or too good to be true. And I think it's really cool that the angel makes an allowance for this. This is, this is almost too good to be true. And you know, I realized that. So here, I'm going to give you a sign. You're going to find a child wrapped in swaddling cloth in a, in a feeding trough, in a manger. And, and so he gives them something to seek out confirmation for. Um, and and it's, it's incredible. You're not going to find this powerful deliverer with the Caesar among the nobles. You're going to find him in a barn. So why is that a, why is that a sign? I, if, if, if it needs saying, that is the last place you would expect to find a king. It's the last place you'd expect to find any child placed in a, a feeding trough. Could the Savior, Messiah, and Lord truly be in a feeding trough? And so, given the sign, the, the, the text tells us the shepherds left their, their flocks and they, they left with haste to go see if these things were true. They were driven by a desperate hope for this news to be true. And they went to Bethlehem to see. And in fact, those things were were true. They set their eyes on their deliverer in a manger. They beheld the sign. And as they beheld their mighty deliverer, I imagine, you know, in the pride of our hearts, we might have a hard time bowing our knee to a child in a, in a feeding trough. But I imagine they humbled themselves to bow the knee before their savior. So now I think is where we get to the point in the text where we consider how we respond. <clears throat> so let me ask you, what happens uh, when your greatest hopes come true, they're, they're realized. The thing we've been longing for, it seems like that, that just happens so rarely. But when it happens, we're just, there's an inexpressible joy. Um, so I don't know how many of you, um, if I've shared my story about my sons, I probably share my story about my sons all the time. Um, but one of my sons, uh, we, all three of them were fostered and we've adopted them over the course of a, of a few years. Um, but the first child that we had in our house is Asher. He's our second oldest. And <clears throat> when he was four months old, um, well, I, I should back up. When, when we first got him, we were under the impression that we were going to be able to adopt him. His oldest sister lived with my brother-in-law. And so we were like, oh, we'll keep them together. They'll be kind of cousin siblings and it'll be beautiful. And, and it seemed like the, the foster care system was behind us. They were like, yeah, we'll get you licensed and you can adopt this kid. Well, when he was four months old, we found out that there was another family who had intended to adopt him. And we found out really kind of surprisingly, this family had told us they didn't plan to adopt him and they changed their mind. And in a moment, Asher, like, I think it wasn't a moment. It was like a week or two. Asher was going to be removed and taken to this other family. And this was for us, like great darkness. It felt like the death of a child because we were imagining like, you know, who was born around the same time as Asher, like who are his friends going to be as he grows up into, into high school. And all of a sudden those dreams just kind of like shattered. And so it felt dark. And, uh, and, and there's a lot of God's goodness in that story. You know, like we wouldn't have taken Jermaine into our house, who's my oldest son. If, if Asher hadn't been taken out of our house, we could only handle one at the time. But what happened was um, in that darkness, I mean, in the like seeming death of a child, fast forward 10 months <clears throat> and we get the call that seemed like too good to be true. 
Uh, we get the call and I remember where I'm at. I remember which direction I'm facing, what room I'm in. I don't think I asked my wife uh, what the answer should be. Um, I might have, I can't remember that part, but I get the call from the caseworker who removed Asher from our house, um, 10 months prior. And she said, Hey, you remember that kid that we, that, that baby we took out of your house, we took away from you. It was something like that. It was that awkward of a, of a thing to say, but she's like, you remember that baby we took away from you? I'm like, uh, yeah, I remember. Hey, um, things kind of fell apart in this other house. Would you be willing to take them back in? And it's like, well, yes, yes. But it's like, how do you quantify that joy? And it's almost like, you know, with the shepherds, it's like, okay, I'll believe it when I see it. Right. And so I'm kind of waiting. This joy is like, I, th- I think we're going to get them back. And there's like, uh, this is going to be a little overwhelming because Jermaine's like the same age. We're going to have like twins now. That's unexpected. But how can we say No but I'll believe it when I see it. And then, and then they brought him over. <laughs> and, and it's just, so why do I, why do I share that? I'm just, I think like, okay, what's the point in sharing that? And I think it, it, it's to illustrate something really, really important about the nature of joy. Um, so let me say this, you know, when you, when something awesome happens in your life, maybe you, maybe you recognize how this feels. It actually feels more awesome after you've shared it with someone. Can you relate to that? Like when, when something joyous happens to me, I have to tell people about it because joy contained and kept inside is just not fullness of joy. And so like this story about Asher, that's one of the most joyful things in my life. And it feels more joyful every time I get to share it, right? That's the nature of joy. It, it, it has to come out of us. And I, I was supposed to bring like a two liter and I, I forgot one, but like if you shake up a two liter, right? There's an occasion for joy. What has to happen? It just has to overflow, the nature of joy, it's, it's wired in us in such a way that it needs to find expression. Um, whether other people want to hear it or not, we just, we want to tell them because that's how joy works. And so I think that the shepherds did what is natural to all of us upon receiving and, and getting good news. They shared it. When they found Mary and they found Joseph, they shared the good and sweet sayings about Jesus with them and, and with whoever else was near enough to listen. And, and, and so they spread the news of great joy for all people. And, and I think that Luke's actually made a clear use of a pattern in these first two chapters already about, actually, this is what's supposed to happen. God will work deliverance in that lowly, surprising way through a humble savior. And then people who are humble enough to receive it respond with joy. They respond with song. So in, in, we, we see this for the first time in chapter one. Um, uh, God appears to, to the lowly virgin Mary uh, and is told that she's going to bear the savior of the world in her womb. And uh, in joy, she gave glory to God in a song. And what we sometimes recognize as the Magnificat, a song uh, just beautiful that God has not forgotten the lowly and humbles the proud and has lifted up her, his servants, right? Beautiful song, glory to God, okay? Second occasion, um, <clears throat> the barren Elizabeth and her husband. Uh, when, when Elizabeth gives birth to John, um, and, and, and after Zechariah's lips are open and, and, and he names him John, what does he do? He sings a song. He prophesies. I mean, so the, the authors of scripture or the translators of scripture help us by indenting it, right? We can see that this is not narrative genre. This is a song. And so Zechariah sings a song. Um, actually, later in chapter two, we're going to meet the man Simeon. And we don't know much about Simeon other than the fact that God told Simeon, hey, you're going to see the savior. You're going to see the Messiah before you die. 
And so in the spirit, he, he wanders into the temple and behold, the savior, Jesus is there, um, uh, just happens to be with, uh, with Mary and, and Joseph. And, and what does he do? He sings a song, right? And, and then here, uh, when God revealed to lowly shepherds that a mighty savior was born in a lowly manger, the angels sing a song and, and the shepherds later also sing a song. And and so friends, this is the kind of overflowing joy that Luke intends for us to respond with to such great news. It's that two liter, that joy is supposed to overflow. It's supposed to come out of us in joyful song. Like we're, we're getting to do whenever we gather here on a Sunday, worshiping the Lord together. And so if that's how Luke intends for us to respond, let me pose the question how do you respond to this news of a savior? Does it bring you this kind of joy? The kind of joy that cannot be full unless it's shared. Does it bring that kind of joy that the shepherds had? Does it pour out of you overflowing out of this worship hall into our work weeks or our school weeks? Does it pour into our conversations with our family members or or our friends? Does it pour out of us into our conversations with neighbors? Or has your joy grown a bit quiet? If so, if your joy has grown quiet, I think it's worth asking the question, why is that? Why is, if there is an absence of joy in your heart, why might that be? If joy isn't pouring over in your heart, why, why is that? What's holding it back? And these are, these are very big questions. Very big questions. And the answers will probably be different for for us, each of us. But I think it's an important question for us to ask whoever we are. That said, I think there are some common culprits for holding back joy. Um, And and one of them uh, I'll call spiritual amnesia, meaning uh, a a tendency to forget spiritual truths, namely who God is, and who we are before him. I, we have this ability to, uh, or tendency, I should say, to forget the truths that we know in scripture. And, and that can cause us to, to have an absence of joy. So um, for starters, we have this tendency to forget who God is. It may be <clears throat> that we forget who God is um, because of the intensity of the darkness in our life or the sufferings the sting of loss, the pit of despair, the ache of fractured relationships. Suffering has this ability over time to make us forget who God really is, to forget his character. And it may be that God's seeming silence over the years has, over time, worn away our faith in his promises. And if that is you this morning, Hear this, that the news of a savior born unto you is meant to be a testimony and reminder to you of God's faithful love for you. Your name is engraved in his hands and and he wants to remind you of that. He wants to restore to you a measure of joy. But spiritual amnesia works another way too. It may also be that we've forgotten who we are before God in a number of different ways. Um, 
It may be that we have forgotten how desperately in need of a savior we are. So I I say this mostly uh, in how the Lord has challenged me in preparing this sermon. Why is it that I don't feel joy? Well, how often do I feel like I really need a savior? I can deal with most of my things on my own. So I think I have a tendency to minimize my sin and overemphasize my skills. and, And so trick myself into thinking I'm only a little needy. It may be for some of us that we actively resist feeling needy. It's uncomfortable. And that could be because we've been let down or hurt in the past when we were vulnerable and needy. And we can forget that God made us needy on purpose so that we go to him in our neediness. Instead, what we can do or what I have done and tend to do is when the darkness sets in, we often like dig our heels in, put our head down and we get to work. Saving, saving ourselves, relieving our, our, like delivering ourselves from our present circumstances. And I, um, I guess I, I, I kind of end it with this friends. If, if we are only a little needy, then, then a savior will only bring a little joy. There is that relationship. When we remember how needy we are, a savior is going to bring a lot of joy. So it's okay to be needy. God made us that way. Um, <clears throat> to medicate our spiritual amnesia. A lot of us try to self-medicate this forgetfulness uh, of God and who we are before him. Many of us will numb the sorrows of suffering with stuff. And uh, many of us distract ourselves from our depravity by diverting our attention elsewhere. Uh, we occupy ourselves with a million things that serve only to take our minds off of the weight of our own sufferings or of our sin And I think you know what I'm talking about. So like after a stressful talk or a hard day of work or bad news, devastating loss, we want to like turn our brains off, right? That's a phrase I've used. I I need to stop thinking so deeply for a second. So I just, I turn on the TV or play a game, go to bed. And if that's true, friends, acknowledge it and turn from it. That is a bankrupt remedy, it's, it's a remedy that won't lead to joy. And I, I don't say that to discourage my hope and my aim in this message is your joy and, and my joy. I want, I want you to have an abundance of joy and gladness of heart, but we must recognize those things that oppose our joy, stand against our joy. We have to recognize the, the bankruptcy of the remedies we turn to. The formula for joy is not numbing our sorrows with stuff. It, Indeed, we, we, Romans 5 actually says we can rejoice in our sufferings, but that doesn't mean that, that we should pretend our darkness in life isn't real. That's not, that's not what I'm suggesting. It, it is real. Uh, I think of Job, the, the youth are studying the book of Job right now. Uh, Job knew the, this kind of darkness and how over time it has the ability to distort uh, our vision of God. Job felt that, wrestled through that. But joy can be found in suffering. How? By fighting for faith. That, that is, fighting to believe the character and promises of God in your darkest moments. It's a fight. It's hard. Darkness is wearing. It, it has a, 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 just an immense power to just wear us down over time. We must fight to remember and hold on to the character and promises of God in our darkest moments. And friends, this text that we read this morning is supposed to help us in that fight. It is a testimony that is supposed to help you remember God sees you, knows you, loves you right there in your darkness. 
He is good. He really did send you a savior. He wants you to be with him. This, that, that's what the text does for us. It is a, it is a sweet, sweet thing. So <clears throat> I guess a, a couple closing thoughts. How do we fight for faith? How do we fight for joy? Um, one way to resist spiritual amnesia and to fight for faith is by pondering, I think, and meditating on the providence and promises of God. Life is busy, but I think there's, there's something for us in slowing down and pondering the promises and the character of God. And, and friends, the Bible, just like this text, the Bible is full of stories like this that are all true. The Bible is a testimony to God's mighty promises and works of salvation from beginning to end. So let scripture, like love this book, let scripture bolster your faith. Let it, let it support you and encourage you. Let it remind you who you are before him. Let it remind you who he is. Uh, be reminded by this text of God's faithfulness as you consider Jesus, uh, his humble deliverer. Um, <clears throat> I've told the, I think I told the youth last week or the week before, um, remembering God's character and promises <laughs> um, requires a lot of help. We're very, it's very easy to forget things. And, and so um, remembering God's character and promises, especially during suffering, requires help. The Bible this text particularly is one such help to remind you what is true of God in your darkest times. Uh, secondly, if remembering God's good character and promises requires help, well, hear this. You also need your local church. You need your local church. It is hard to see clearly in our darkness just like it's hard to see at night. You're stumbling around in your house and you stub your toe. It, it is hard to see clearly at night in, in the darkness of your life. So if you haven't, seriously consider finding a few brothers and sisters here to, to, to bring them into your, your darkness, to ask them for help, to, to ask for prayer, to invite their wisdom, invite their comfort, to help you remember the character and promises of God. We are not meant to walk this, this or fight this fight of faith alone. This body is, is God's gift to us to that end. And then finally, I think the most natural response to this passage, how do we, um, how do we, I guess, I don't know, maybe it's not an answer to how to fight for faith, but I think the, the intended response to this passage is that we rejoice. We rejoice. Give God glory for he has given you a savior and with that savior, a reason for great joy. You don't have to save yourself from your sin or your suffering. There is a savior provided for you. If you come to him, bow your knee at his manger at the cross more so where, where his sin, your sin was paid for by him. So, so the coming of a savior surely prompts joyful praise in his people. Um, Let's close in prayer and then actually give expression to that, that praise, expression to that joy together in, in, in song. So if you would, bow your head in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, you know each of us here. You know our hearts. You know the obstacles to faith and joy that, that we have you know the, 
the, the trauma that we've gone through. We might not know it all of each other, but you know us. You see us. Father, I pray that you would, you would help us. You would, you would use this text to remind us that you do see us. You do care for us. You do actually want us to be with you. Our, our names actually are engraved in your hands that you won't forget us. Father, would you comfort those who, who need comfort this morning with the promise of a savior? And Father, would you, would you confront those who, who maybe don't feel like they need a savior that much? Show them their need and then show them their savior. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending uh, the mighty King Jesus to save the lowly and contrite like us. We praise you. Receive our, our humble praise this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. Make sure you come back next week to hear the next message in our series.